you. That's terrific. Um, great morning already and uh, really fantastic hearing what God's doing. I was thinking actually with the um, very loud sounds coming through the ceiling that, um, you know, there are lots of places where um, nobody knows the Lord. And uh, if you wanted to find Jesus, there's nobody local you can contact. And equally, there are lots of countries where and towns where you might be in a gathering like this, you might think, we're the only people in this city, we're the only people in this place. And here in Auckland, we're not even the only people in this building, you know, because God's doing stuff and he's gathering people and uh, there's all kinds of expressions and that's, uh, that's all part of the rich variety that is God. So um, we are actually really blessed with that. Um, so look, we've, um, we've been doing this, uh, just actually let me see if I can do this thingy here. How is seven? And um, just to recap um, for a second, while there, something we began with the creation story: God hanging out in His garden temple with the pinnacle of His creation, us, His image bearers, literally idols, His physical representation in the physical place is the earth, which is His sacred space, His garden temple of Eden. We looked then at vocation, the God-given partnering adventure to represent Him to rule and and fill and cultivate the three domains of sea and land and air and all those creatures that inhabit um, in him and all the culture that follows that. And actually, Ali's story is a great example of that, just, just fulfilling that creation. journey towards restoration of what was lost and we turned our backs on God. And yet, we never lost our image-bearer status because of sin. But we carry his image through suffering and the frustration of things that are not yet as they will be, as well as the joy of the future breaking in. Sarah taught us, didn't she, so amazingly about God's image being our physical bodies, not particular capabilities like reason or conscience that we might gain or lose. So there's no deficiency that would mean we're not his image. We're precious, sacred and of the highest worth. We're sacred sites of God's presence in every place we go. Image bearing is not conditional. As your photograph of the person you love most, you keep it in your, in your jacket, you keep it in your pocket, close to your heart. That's how we're to see every human being on this planet, or 7.8 billion of them, one at a time, individually known. And Johnny said out, didn't he, last week, that God created us as male and female image bearers. That phrase, biologically dimorphic, with some differences in sight, weight, color, behavioral traits, anatomy, chromosomes between male and female. Something unavoidable, intentional, and significant about God's image being made in male and female. Eve is able to take on a title same as and different from, literally, that's what it means. She's the same as and different from Adam. Bone of bone and flesh of flesh rather than made from dust. See, all the other creatures, they were different, but they weren't the same. So they weren't suitable to, to be alongside Adam. Equally, a second man would have been the same, but not different. So God's intention for womanhood was this unique fusion of sameness and difference. And an interdependence that we, and variety that comes that tells us something about who God is. And in relationship and in sexual union, the one flesh of that different but same humans points back to the relational nature, the church. 
Johnny showed us that male and femaleness of created bodies are an essential part of our embodiment. And some gender differences are normal and good and natural, but we also saw Jesus and Paul messing with rigid cultural gender roles where they're dehumanizing. Because they can trap us, they can trap men and women in stereotypes that don't show equal dignity and worth. Tenderness in men and the elevated manner of women set against the rigid hierarchy of Roman culture. They weren't having that. And God wanted to break a few boxes, break a few boundaries. Scripture gives us license to challenge gender norms, but not to challenge our biological sex. Our sex is fundamental to who we are. But we're also called to love and care for humanizing gender roles. Not a rigid, narrow life, but a spacious life of responsible dependence, living faithful to our creator. So that was uh, an amazing, and, and, and I, I felt um, uh, what a privilege really just to, to, just to uh, see how God unfolds more about who he is and what that means for who we are. So today is a little bit different. Um, I want to start by a story um, from my childhood. I remember a picnic on the front lawn as a little boy. I remember we were carrying out our blue and white sort of gingham striped uh, kitchen table, shuffling it out onto our little lawn on the I remember it. I had no idea what was going on. And um, years and years later, uh, I was talking to my mum and it just came up. And um, what was going on was this. My neighbour, Mr Langford and his wife, they were holding a garden party for everyone in the street. And everyone in the street was invited, except one family. Because my mum was divorced. And back then, that was seen as, well, that's a broken home, isn't it? So pointedly, we were not invited so there was my mum, trying to do her best, and all of a sudden, feeling like I've been othered by somebody. And so what was her response? Well, it was defiance. And that was like her, her refusal, defiantly refusing a shame that came from our culture at that time. And, um, and, and, and that's just to say, you know, it's a, it's a painful thing being on the wrong side of what society approves of. And um, for many years, being outside the sexual norm carried a huge stigma and cost. You could be imprisoned. You could be blackmailed. And still today, you might suffer violence and abuse by some people. Many people have experienced stigma and rejection over their sexuality. So what can seem like just biblical reasoning to, to one of us, can a pregnant, unmarried teenager faced a huge stigma, and the father was pleased for his only begotten son to be born into that pain and rejection. Jesus dwells among us with matching bruises from the stigma that we cause one another in our fallenness, the way that we other one another for being different. But the thing is, um, talking and thinking about sexuality in Western cultures these last few years has got caught up in culture wars. And that climate leads to these polarized positions, toxic, hardened attitudes and a kind of code of unquestionable core beliefs that determine allegiance to one faction or the other. There's this kind of emotional intensity that leads to an... How's it got like this? Well, I think there's two things. One is there's some real changes to sexual ethics and norms, but the other is more fundamental. It's the narrative about connection and relationships has changed. Let me talk about the sexual ethics and norms bit. This will make you feel old, it does me. The TV friend series Friends launched 29 years ago. 
can you believe that? 29 years. But the thing is, right, um, I mean, we love the characters, right? They love their, do you really identify them? But Friends epitomised an attitude to sex that's been called serial monogamy. And, and, and in, that, in that frame, what that means is not having sex is seen as ridiculous and pitiful, number one. But also sexual intimacy is not reserved years, maybe months, until something causes a relationship to break up and then we start again. Maybe it goes as far as setting up home together. Uh, but people have multiple sexual partners and that's seen as fine as long as it's one after another and not kind of cheating at the same time, kind of having two, of two people on the go. And, and, and that became uh, not only the norm, but aspirational actually for our society. And we're now you know, 29 years, almost a generation on from that. It's become a norm. More recently, that same norm as sex in serial monogamy now applies for those who are opposite sex attracted, those who are same sex attracted, those who are both sex attracted. You know, it's kind of love is love. And that's how normal is. So that's the world we're in. That's the culture. We're part of the course of this change, the three stories we tell ourselves. The first is the romantics story. Not, not romance, but the romantics. This was a school of thought. It was a reaction to the Enlightenment, where the Enlightenment was um, uh, an emphasis on science and reason. And there were poets like Shelley and Blake. They tapped into the mysterious and intangibles of life, arguing, I think rightly, that our lives are more than what is seen and known. But they went on from that to say, the internal, the emotional, and the individual are what give us meaning. Feelings, emotions, intuition, and experience were a primary authority for truth and justice. So in, under this, and you can still f see this today, see it in just about every film you can think of, romantic love, for example. The second story is the authenticity story, the importance of living authentic lives that are true to ourselves in order to live a full life. We should be free to express ourselves without any pressure to conform to society, to previous generations, or to any creed. Any outside authority is seen as oppressive and restrictive, even harmful to your unique identity. So if it feels good, do it. To impose restrictions on someone's expression of love is to deny their authentic self because love is love. Preferences should be aff affirmed. Whatever feels right to the individual, no one has the right to stop you loving whoever you choose, expressing that love however you choose. If a desire is repressed or you're prevented from pursuing your own pleasure, this idea of a therapeutic story that actually what we want to need to do is help a person find their best self. And that means a therapeutic culture actually really resists authority. It's very non-directive and it says, we're just going to help you in your self-expression. You just look inside yourself, grow and develop, and we'll provide safe spaces to affirm and encourage you wherever that goes. Now, none of those things are, are don't contain things that have nuggets of Real positivity, actually, and particularly that therapeutic story is brilliant for trauma-informed care, for example, for people who've been through trauma. But the thing is, when your expression, self-expression, limits are imposed on my self-expression, what happens then? Well, in our culture, we've got really little tolerance, or they're preventing me from living how I want. If I feel threatened, I must resist anybody who threatens me or my humanity. So connections with others can seem conditional. You know, it says, oh, you don't need to have that kind of negativity in your life. And all of a sudden, the connection is severed. Relationships become about how others make us feel about ourselves. And we become afraid of the harm that others can do us. But here's the thing. This is why it's got touchy. When we're hurt, in pain, or in a panic, we often lash out. We can go into protection overdrive. And the rational bit of our brain, the bit that controls our cerebral cortex, our frontal lobe, the bit that's really good at problem solving, that gets overwhelmed. 
And so the amygdala, the part of our brain that controls emotions, takes over people. That's how it is. So our culture's got us to a place where fear separates us from people, even ones trying to help us, and we don't respond well to perceived threats when we're scared. Fear's become a dominant force in so many of our interactions and relationships in our culture, from political events to Twitter spats. And all of this can lead to breakdowns in our humanity as connections just unravel. So what are we to do? Well, when in doubt, look to the perfect human. Look to Jesus. We see two things in him as the perfect image bearer of God. Actually, just as an aside, I was thinking about, you know, in fact, um, I think Sarah mentioned it. Like, what it is, what's that about? And, and the best analogy I could come from is a bit like, a bit like imagine, imagine Han Solo went to a sci-fi uh, convention, right? And there was a, an, a, a, Harrison Ford went to a sci-fi convention and there was a Han Solo lookalike contest, right? And they're all there and they all look just like it. They're spitting image of him. He comes second in the contest, let's say. You know, and uh, the thing is, it's really interesting. And someone says to him, Joe, you look like the spitting image of, of, of Han Solo. And it's like, yeah, he's, he's him and he's him. And that's like Jesus. He's in God's image and he is God. We're in God's image, but we're not God. We're like the other people cosplaying Han Solo. <laughs> so, so we are the spitting image of him and yet we're not him. Jesus is the spitting image of him. Jesus. Now, what was the context of the most well-known parable was the lost sheep, the lost coin, the prodigal son? Luke 51 says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus. The tax collectors and, quote, sinners were gathering around, and the Pharisees and the were muttering, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Hmm, interesting. What kind of sinners? Well, Jesus, a bit later in Matthew 21, does not use a euphemism, he says, to the religious leaders, The tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. So... Uh, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? And um, we see that, uh, again, um, in Luke uh, 7.38, Jesus at Simon the Pharisee's house, a woman who'd led a sinful life, she was notorious. She, again, you think about the woman who's caught in adultery, they were, they were there to get Jesus to join in with othering her, and he, uh, uh, he, he just starts to say, he says that he is without sin, cast the first stone, and then one by one they drift away, and he says, he straightened up, he asked a woman, where are they? Where are your accusers, is another translation of that. Where are they? Has no one condemned you? Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. The amazing thing about Jesus is that he hung out with people who would make many respectable people feel very uncomfortable because they live very different lives. And yet, despite Jesus' holiness, they were like a man. Um, so, uh, and, and, and so I think, you know, people of all lifestyles who are stigmatized wanted to hang out with Jesus. And that tells us a lot about him, actually. Tells us a lot about who we are as well. He wasn't frightened by it. Just, do you remember when we were talking about the Old Testament, when, when, when people are separating from, from spouses with different, uh, different faiths and stuff? And we said, actually, back then it was like the polarity could go from the sinful into the holy and there was a sense of preserving and separation actually the polarity of jesus is different he infects people with the god's grace and goodness and we see that in zacchaeus a tax collector despised you know cheating people but along with the seriously radical and scandalously radical welcome of jesus is the scandal oops if i can do this is scandalously radical holiness now this was um a passage that John looked at before, 
where the Pharisees are asking him, and you know, can basically is uh, is a no fault, fault quickie divorce okay for anything? And uh, Jesus goes back to say, let's let's look back that beginning image of the male and female. What did it mean? He talks about that, but I want to draw the attention to um, to just the end of this. So, obviously, um, Jesus said, you know. Moses permitted you to divorce your wife because your hearts were hard, but it wasn't this way from the beginning. I tell you, anyone who divorced his wife except for sex, maybe it's better not to marry, they say with some hyperbole, because that would have been totally laughable at the time. You know, it's quite a statement in a world where children was, were, were your social security, because there was no super, right? So imagine, ah, better, better if you don't marry them. And they're expecting him to say, of course not, marriage is great, or maybe... I'll tone down those conditions a little bit. They can't conceive of something different to their no-fault divorce being workable. Because for them, you know, being, in a, being in that marriage relationship is somehow the, the pinnacle, even in their culture. And instead, what does Jesus do? Well, he talks about eunuchs, okay? Okay, so some people might be born without sexual organs. Some people are offensive to Jewish sensitivities and sensibilities as damaging a person's reproductive organs, okay? Because it was a practice that would exclude you from the assembly of God's people. So it says in Deuteronomy. Um, and also being single was totally outside the mainstream of Jewish life. It was a temporary aberration that needed to be fixed. And, and yet, and, and, and in fact, being single was almost associated with the word eunuch, a bit like an insult. Ha <laughs> ha, you know, you haven't got any, you know, whatever. All that kind of coarse locker room, locker room talk. But Jesus turns it around right. He says, actually, well, marriage can be received as a gift, but singleness equally is a noble calling. And do you know what? And he, as a single person, I'm a eunuch. But that was in a culture that saw not being in a relationship as abnormal and socially disapproved of. Why? You're using a term that would be really, really difficult to identify with, actually. Why would you choose to be that? Now let's look at another scandally, radically, radically holiness thing. So Jesus has been talking for a while. This is in John 6. He's been talking about being the bread of life. And, and he goes and says, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I'll give for the life of the world. And that stuff, whoa, hang on, said the Jews. What does he mean he could give his flesh to you? He said, truly, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And you can see it goes on. And look at verse 60. I'm hearing it meant so, yes. <laughs> And then it goes, and uh, and look at verse 66. From this time, many of disciples turned back and chose not to follow him. He's doing it again. He's pushing all their cultural buttons with his amazing claims. There's been a strict prohibition on blood since the time of the Mosaic law. Why use that language? Why not use a different image, right? Why use something that was just going to completely, you know, be really, really challenging? And I guess what that shows us is that Sometimes what God calls of us is really, really challenging in our culture. And, and, and Jesus, yet, he does that. But, and of course, so we say, you know, it's a hard saying. It really is a hard saying. You don't want. And I feel that, you know, what Johnny outlined, this sense of, you know, Christian marriage and Christian singleness in our culture can feel like a hard saying. But actually, we see in Jesus both the radical holiness to live away, a particular way, and it has boundaries. And we also see the radical welcome, the scandalously radical welcome that means that people don't feel othered. They feel they want to be around the presence of the God, even as he demands things of us. Someone I admire greatly put it this way. And he said, um, 
One, we believe everybody is precious and worthy of dignity and respect as made in the image of God. And two, we believe that sexuality, then we'd love to talk and be in conversation with you and we're not trying to make points and score points about that. That person who said that was a guy called Andy Robbins and he's a same-sex attracted Christian leader in Oxford. And he's living out a life trying to be faithful to the teaching of the world, the, the word of God, whilst recognizing that he's, he's same-sex attracted and he's quite open about that and he helps people with that. What does it mean then, given the radical welcome and, and, and radical holiness of Jesus in a culture where people may be in and out of sexual relationships, whether that's the same sex or opposite sex? What does it mean to do that? Well, the thing is, it, there's some things it doesn't mean. Firstly, it doesn't mean an unbiblical moral panic of yesteryear that basically overlooks fidelity and sexually attractive uh, and sexually active singleness provided it's straight. That was pure hypocrisy. It was what a society saw of respectability. It also doesn't need, mean the heresy of expecting people who've not had a life-changing encounter with Jesus to live according to scripture. That, that's it's heresy. That's not how we're made. Remember, Paul said, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? We gladly spend time with people who think differently, see things differently, and live differently to what God calls us to do. That's the radical welcome, the scandal, binary choice of culture wars. Either I'm affirming everything you, about you or I'm othering you. Is there a third way? Well, here's what I think it might be. God spelled out in his creation his design for one flesh union. Ties it over the others. Relationships in or neglecting the poor or greed or fraud or fiddling your taxes. You know, these are all equally serious and equally deadly according to scripture. Nor, by the way, do we make any distinction between who someone's attracted to. Doesn't really matter if you're same sex or opposite sex attracted. Does that, does that, does that challenge you? Well, good. You know, Jesus was tempted in every way as we are. He was probably tempted sexually. He didn't sin. Was he tempted by people of the same sex or the opposite sex? We don't know. The Bible doesn't say. But he was a perfect role model for attempt intimate relationships. You know, why is it a big deal? Or is it a big deal? Well, Psalm 19.3 says this, Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Willful sins are an example of a snare. A sin that, so, as Hebrews 12 once says, so easily entangles us that we need to fix our eyes on Jesus and throw off what easily entangles us to run the race. But the sin can ensnare us so we cannot run the race. The key point about getting into a wrong relationship of any kind is they typically lock in our will to actively and continuously choose the thing on an ongoing basis. We want to live that way. So they short-circuit our repentance. With willful sins, we don't regret what we've done like a lapse. But just like idols in any other area of life, for sexual relationship sins, either we throw them off or we can't run the race. But our, winful, our willful sins, our idols, anything we put above knowing God and walking in his ways and are unwilling to give up, they become an ongoing barrier between us and the Lord. But as we see in the Old Testament, God at times continues graciously to interact with those given to idols for a season. But eventually, he brings them to a head and we have to face a choice. A right relationship with God is only restored when we choose him and rid ourselves of the willful sin or the idol. That's why relationship sins are a deal. A deal that's different from, you know, 
maybe I boundaries, but we're not going to be othering either. We won't be joining into culture war. We'll be addressing, addressing the things that we all struggle with. So whenever any of us get stuck in willful sin or idolatry of any kind, we make no distinction, then there's no stigma. Pastoral help is there for us to get unstuck and find again God's amazing calling to Christian singleness or Christian marriage. And we do all this in the context of being in the Fano of God, the extended family of God, a church community of image bearers who find deep relationship and purpose, living together as light, as disciples of Jesus. Is it that hard and costly in a society that sees romantic relationships as a pinnacle of human flourishing? Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in the field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, went and sold all he had and bought the field. Again, the kingdom's like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away, sold everything he had and, and bought it. For the treasure of great price, the treasure, the pearl of great price, we give up everything like, like Peter said. To whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. We don't do it reluctantly. We do it in our joy at what we found. Being fully human, we find our significance. You matter. We find connection. The difference that we make matters. I want to finish with this. This is a quote from Being Human. Our stories are all stories of searching. We search for a good self to be and for good work to do. We search to become human in a world that tempts us always to be less than human or looks to us to be more. We search to love and be loved. And in a world where it's often hard to believe in anything, we search to believe in something holy and beautiful and life transcending that will give meaning and purpose to the lives we live. Humans can be self-oriented and conflicted, searching for significance, connection, a space to call home and reason for being in us and his amazing kingdom. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, um, we recognize that you made us in your image. And yet, Lord, so much of living in our culture can be challenging and confusing and and Lord, even uh, with some of the things we've talked about today can be triggering to us where we've been hurt by fallen people. Recognize that othering is, is treason against your sacred image. And we don't want to do it. We want to joyfully embrace your kingdom, your future. We're not defined by our sin. We're defined by the fact that you call us to be children of God. You give us that right. We are adopted. You give us a new name. We don't have to search and find our own identity. You call us by name. Lord, I want to pray that as you, um, as you do your work in us, Lord, would you be with us and draw us to you, guide us. Lord, we want to walk in your ways. We want to walk in love. We want to be full like Jesus of grace and truth. We want to be a people of scandalous welcome and scandalous holiness, Lord. Help us to be both, we pray.
Fill us now with your spirit. Fill us with your joy. Renew afresh, Lord, our sense of that amazing uh, image that's in us and that amazing future you're calling us to.